Hi, everybody. It's Stefan Molyneux from Free Domain Radio. Back with us is Dr. Paul Craig Roberts. Uh, pretty much the most popular interviewee we've ever had on the show, probably because I talked the least. At least that's my guess. He was the Assistant Secretary of the Treasury for Economic Policy under Ronald Reagan, a former Associate Editor of the Wall Street Journal, the author of over 10 books, uh, which uh, an, an elegant and obviously well-researched writer, so I appreciate that. And we're going to talk a little bit about U.S. foreign policy, but focusing in particular, uh, you've written a lot about the sort of deep history of what's going on in Crimea, which always seems to get portrayed as hand puppets of good and evil, you know, uh, uh, the rebellious freedom fighters versus basically the stormtroopers of the empire in Russia. Uh, but of course, the history is a lot more nuanced. I wonder if you could help people understand a little bit about where this supposed conflict is coming from. Okay. You know, um, Crimea has been part of Russia since, uh, I think, Catherine the Great in the late 18th century. Uh, it was Russia's uh, warm water port. So they would have year-round Navy and not be iced in from their, their northern <laughs> seaports. <clears throat> and so um, prior to the Russians, it was Tartars, and they were descendants of the various uh, Mongolians that had overrun uh, the entirety of Russia at one time in history. And so Russia took that part back, and it was part of Russia until 1954. At that time, of course, Ukraine. Oh, and let me say, Ukraine also has been part of Russia uh, since, I think, about the time of Catherine the Great. <laughs> she, uh, she conquered uh, whatever that uh, they needed. And sorry, just for the occasional listener who don't know who Catherine the Great is, that means that Ukraine has been part of Russia for longer than America has been a country. Right. Uh, so that, that's, that's an important thing to understand. <laughs> that's that's about it, or at least for as long. And so uh, Ukraine was part of Russia, and of course um, both of them became part of the Soviet Union. And during the the Soviet era, both early with Lenin and later in 1954 with Khrushchev, various Russian territories were stuck in out of the Russian Republic and stuck into the Ukrainian Soviet Republic. Now, it didn't make any difference because it was all the same country. Uh, <clears throat> Lenin, I think, put some of the southern and eastern parts of uh, Ukraine, essentially Russian cities. And Khrushchev in 1954 stuck in Crimea. Now, <clears throat> no one really knows all these reasons, maybe to sort of please the Ukrainians. Um, Khrushchev himself was Ukrainian. <laughs> uh, he was called the butcher of the Ukraine at one time or the other. And uh, other people say that um, Khrushchev stuck <clears throat> Crimea into the Ukraine in order to ward it down the pro-Nazi elements in Western Ukraine who had fought for Adolf Hitler against the Soviet Union during World War II. And uh, so that this was some sort of a party calculation that we'll add some Russian population, some more Russian population uh, to counterbalance uh, the, the Nazi extreme uh, nationalist elements in the Western Ukraine. So <clears throat> that's... I'm sorry, I just, I'd like to throw in something as well, too, because when you say fought um, with Hitler against the communists... Uh, I would argue that it was because, of course, in the 1930s, under Stalin's program of collectivized farming, 
the Ukrainians were suffering mass starvation. Millions of people died in the Ukraine, just as later they did under Mao in China. And they were desperate to throw off communism because it literally was starve to death or get rid of the communists. It wasn't that they were just innately a pro-Nazi. Well, um, I'm sure I'm sure the collectivization <clears throat> did stir them up, but the Ukrainians weren't the only ones to suffer from <laughs> collectivization. And it was actually that whole, it wasn't done for the purpose of starving. <laughs> it was a policy that failed. What Stalin was trying to do, and I'm not making any uh, apologies for him, just explaining. Uh, what he was trying to do is uh, implement a Marxist economic system in which there would be no buying and selling. So the farmers would turn over their food to the authorities just as the factory workers would turn over their manufactured goods to the authorities. And the authorities then would redistribute these products. Food would go north to the cities and manufactured goods would go to the farmlands. This was a crackpot scheme, but it was based in ideology, like most schemes, even those in the United States and the EU. <laughs> and and it, it failed. And of course, it it meant a uh, great threat to uh, Soviet power, particularly in the cities, because that's where their base was and the workers, the proletariat, they were called. And so to keep the workers from rebelling against the brand new revolution, uh, they really squeezed down on the farmers and essentially just confiscated their food and left them to starve. <clears throat> so that was that was the way it happened. It wasn't due to animosity toward the Ukrainians. <laughs> well, now, to finish this, when Khrushchev transferred Crimea, he did not uh, transfer Sevastopol, the naval base. That stayed as a, uh, a subject to central uh, Soviet uh, governance. Now, <clears throat> when Soviet Union fell apart, and uh, the deal was made for Ukraine to emerge as an independent country. Uh, under U.S. pressure, uh, Sevastopol was stuck into Crimea with the rest and transferred to Ukraine. So the Russians were in an anomalous position. They had their naval base there, and it was now part of Ukraine. So they were compensated with a uh, lease on the base until the year 2042 were permitted 25,000 troops to be kept there, certain number of, of fighter aircraft, certain number of tanks and artillery. It's all specified in the agreement. And so when it was reported in the Western media that Putin had occupied the Ukraine with 16,000 soldiers, it was just a blatant lie. They were already there. They're there under the terms of the lease. And it's sort of like saying that uh, the U.S. has now unlawfully occupied, um, I guess, any of the Okinawa or any of the military bases which they have these service agreements Germany. with the governments to have military stationed there. It's not an invasion. It may be considered a slightly long-term occupation to still be there after the Second World War, 60, 70 years, but it's not an invasion. All right. That's right. It's the same. Uh, but it would be like, suppose uh, some difficulty arose between the U.S. and Germany. Uh, 
And then the newspapers all reported that the uh, 50,000 American troops just now invaded Germany. <laughs> it would be a lie. Right. They're already there. <laughs> Where did they so, come from? Did they burrow up from the ground? I mean, <laughs> yeah. So they're already... And of course, Russia needs this. Uh, it's the only... Is it the only warm water port that they have for their Navy? Of course, for the most of the year, at least certainly for the winter months, uh, Russia is ice-locked and can't do much of a Navy unless you count... Uh, really fast skaters uh, with nunchucks. So, uh, yeah, I mean, they need that, and that's why they have that agreement in place. That's right. They, it's a huge strategic threat to Russia to try to grab that away from them. But that was the American plan and the Ukrainian uh, plan, the, uh, the Ukrainians that the Americans were working with, you know, the Stooges. Uh, the plan was uh, when, when uh, the U.S. coup succeeds and puppets grab Ukraine, that Russia would be evicted from its naval base. It's part of the policy of, of hemming in Russia and pushing it back and making it unable to resist uh, American hegemony. Uh, you know, the neoconservatives are very upset that Russia blocked uh, Obama's uh, invasion of Syria. Uh, they're very upset <clears throat> that he blocked the setup of Iran, you know, by working out the arrangement uh, with the Iranians on their, on their nuclear energy program. So they really want to get rid of Russia's opposition to all the forward thrust of the American empire. And so that's what uh, the whole thing in the Ukraine is about. It's not about anything else. The riots were orchestrated by the American financed non-governmental organizations. Yes, they had some sincere dupes participating, basically people <laughs> who were being used and didn't have the wits uh, to see it, gullible Ukrainians, gullible students. <clears throat> and yes, uh, the president uh, was corrupt, but so is all the rest of them, and so are the ones that are there now. So. Well, it wasn't about any of those things. It was about, hey, we're going to bring a direct strategic threat to Russia. We're going to grab the Ukraine, put anti-ballistic missile bases in Ukraine on the Russian border and kick the Russians out of their Black Sea naval base. So that's what it was all about. Now, Putin didn't have to do anything because it's a Russian territory and the Russian people there said, we're not going to be part of this. This is not in particular with the way that the American stooges who had seized power were talking and doing. Uh, you know, the first thing they did, they abolished the use of Russian as an official language. Uh, they introduced bills uh, to arrest anyone who kept both Russian and Ukrainian citizenship. They destroyed the Russian war memorials. <laughs> and as you may have seen uh, today or yesterday, uh, this uh, former president who was as corrupt as any of the rest of them and was sentenced to jail, basically, for corruption. It was so bad. The woman, uh, Timoshenko, you know, the one that braids her hair across the top of her head like it's a crown, you know. <laughs> well, she now has been caught uh, on an intercepted phone call uh, using all kinds of profanity and saying she was going to take up a machine gun and kill every one of those bloody Russians and that they needed to stamp Russia off the face of the earth, this type of thing. Well, wow. it's not Putin speaking like this. Right. And so 
uh, just to try to pretend that Russia is the source of the problem. You know, it reminds me of, you know, 15 years ago today, I think, was when the Americans and the NATO attacked uh, Yugoslavia or Serbia, whatever it was at the time. <laughs> and they bombed it and they did all kinds of things. And of course, then they pointed their finger at the Yugoslavs, <laughs> who hadn't done anything. Uh, right. So uh, it's the same sort of thing, you know, the weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. Um, now, from, from Putin's perspective, I think it could be reasonably argued there are two major provocations that have occurred. Of course, uh, under Reagan, Reagan, part of the, the dissolution of the Soviet Union involved the promise that NATO was not going to go into Eastern Europe, number one. And number two, I think, was it 2010 when American military policy changed to permit first strike capability of nuclear weapons. So if you have people breaking treaties and extending a hostile or at least not friendly military alliance into territory that was, I mean, when Hitler went into the Rhineland, it was the same kind of thing in, in 1938, I think it was. And so from Putin's standpoint, I mean, America is now pushing, uh, or at least uh, the North American Treaty Organization is pushing military uh, influence into Eastern Europe, and they have um, now committed to a policy of the use of nuclear weapons in a first strike capability. I think that would make most people quite alarmed. Yes, and I think the Russians have been uh, very low key. I mean, these provocations have been going on for two decades. They, they didn't just take NATO into Eastern Europe. They put anti-ballistic missile bases in Poland. They, uh, the, the Americans, or, or Washington. Uh, Washington uh, fomented color revolutions in Georgia and Ukraine. Uh, the one in Georgia succeeded, and the, Ameri the Washington established a puppet in Georgia, which was the birthplace of Joseph Stalin, also part of Russia and the Soviet Union uh, for as long as the United States has existed. <laughs> they pried that part away. Um, and in 2004, they tried the Orange Revolution in Ukraine, but it didn't, it didn't succeed in the way uh, uh, Washington hoped. So that's why 10 years later, they've come back with this coup that was completely orchestrated by Washington. It had, it had really nothing to do with the Ukrainian people. They, uh, they were duped and used and paid, a lot of them paid to go in the streets, others out into the streets based on some kind of idealism, some sort of gullible idealism. <clears throat> and, and so what the rush, and so what happened in Georgia a few years ago, uh, the United States and Israel go in, train the Georgian army, equip it, and set it loose on uh, South Ossetia, which is full of Russians <laughs> who were breakaway province. And peace was being kept there by uh, Russian uh, peacekeepers, and they were sharing duty with Georgian peacekeepers. Well, that, that then was an attack directly on Russia, on Russian troops, on Russian populations. And it brought in the Russian army. And they made short work of the American trained army and could have simply hung the American puppet president and put the country back into Russia, which is probably where it belongs. <clears throat> Instead, they settled the issue and withdrew. So to try to say that they have these, they're trying to put the Soviet Union back together, clearly not in Georgia. They could have, they had, they had it in their hands but they withdrew. And I think the only reason that um, 
Russian forces would go into Ukraine, the only reason will be that if the Ukrainians, the American stooges, the stooge government, if they persist in their violent response to the demonstrations by the Russians in the Russian cities in eastern and southern Ukraine, if they put these down with violence, I think you'll see uh, uh, the Russian army uh, come in because these essentially are Russian territories. They should not be in the Ukraine. It, right. It's just a quirk of Soviet leadership that put them there, and they shouldn't be there. And if well, you even think, even Gorbachev has said that Crimea should be returned to Russia. Yeah, but uh, and you know he was uh, of course Reagan's ally towards the end of the end right. of the Cold War, and he said it's handed back. They all speak Russian. They're all part of Russia. These artificial lines that have been drawn up are just ridiculous. It's like the Churchill burp, you know, when he drew the line across the partition in India, in the post-war period. Uh, it's like uh, Czechoslovakia, which was the Mongol state created out of First World War, or you know the current mess that is Iraq. I mean, just redrawing these lines does not change people's allegiances and minds and hearts and histories. They right. tend to go. I've got so many emails after our last interview, people saying, I am in Crimea and Russian blood, whatever that is, uh, maybe vodka, I don't know, Russian blood flows through my veins and I yearn to return to Mother Russia. It's insane from a logical standpoint, but these are historical tendencies that you cannot just erase with a, a pen and a map. Well, uh, that's right. It's not just Crimea. It's, it's eastern uh, Ukraine and also the rest of southern Ukraine. I believe all this at one time was Russian. You, all those cities, Kharkov, it's a Russian city, you know, uh, Odessa. I think Odessa is down in the south. Um, the Donetsk base and all, all of this, I think, is historically Russian territory. Now, I mean, it's been a long time since I did Russian studies. I have a century ago at Oxford, and I may have all this jumbled up, but I do know that parts of eastern and southern Ukraine remain Russian. It's the language, it's the people. Uh, there may be more Ukrainians mixed in those areas with Russians than were present in Crimea, but they are essentially Russian er uh, areas and they're Russian territory historically. And so if they were going to split off the Ukraine, they should have put those parts back into Russia. It was a, it was a stupid uh, mistake, but of course, Russia was falling apart, and they had Yeltsin, and he was not a defender of Russian interests. So <clears throat> that's how it happened. So now it's dangerous. It's a very dangerous situation, and it shows that Washington is extremely reckless to take this, take a tinderbox like that and go in and stir it up. Now, everything was calm enough. The, the people were getting along. The economy is integrated into the Russian economy. The industrial production was going uh, to Russia. Uh, the, the naval base produced jobs and income flows. <clears throat> and the Russians were not being aggressive toward the Ukraine. They let them have their own government and everything was going along fine until the uh, Americans go in there and stir it all up. Now, either you've got no judgment or you're reckless. And if you, and if it's, and either one, whether it's a lack of judgment or recklessness, when one nuclear power confronts another nuclear power in such a stupid way, uh, the whole world's at stake. And so what strikes me as extraordinary is how 
nonchalant everybody else in the world is about this. Uh, if if the aggressiveness of Washington persists and, and takes us to the point of war, with all the alliances the United States has, that involves all of Western and Eastern Europe, Australia, New Zealand, Canada, <laughs> Japan. Uh, China would probably line up with the Russians because it realizes it's got the same enemy Russia has. And the whole world would be up in nuclear Armageddon. And so people should be criticizing Washington like mad. They should be protesting in the streets. They should be screaming and yelling. Instead, they're lining up with all the lies and all the propaganda. As they have since the beginning of the Republic. As you pointed out, there was a brief moment of rationality with the Founding Fathers, and then the brain-dead zombie mob took over and follows the yellow, yellow journalists into every war that can be manufactured, like whatever comic strip they can come up with. You, you mentioned something that I, I really wanted to focus on as well, Dr. Roberts, about the degree to which Crimean independence had been pursued in a perfectly legal sanctioned manner. Uh, this I've not seen anywhere else reported. I wonder if you could help people understand the degree to which they did follow UN guidelines seeking for independence and so on, and the degree to which this lawful action has been opposed. And of course, that the US invited, after saying, for heaven's sakes, don't intervene in Crimea, the US invited the Russians to come in and stop the election, because you know, self-determination apparently is a great evil. That's right. And Washington was uh, damning Russians for intervening, which they had not done, until the referendum came up. And then they demanded that the Russians do intervene, stop the vote. <laughs> so they, they didn't, <clears throat> once it looked like there would be self-determination in Crimea, Washington wanted to stamp that out. Well, what did they do in Crimea? This, you know, they have their own government. They always have. All these provinces have these provisional governments as well as a central government. And the government there uh, followed precisely the way the United States and NATO divorced Kosovo from Serbia. They followed the precise UN uh, procedures and the precise procedures used by the specified by the International Court of Justice. So the first thing they did, they separated from Ukraine the government put a vote and separated from Ukraine and became um, independent. And then they, in response to the demands of the people, they had a referendum in which people would decide, did they want to stay independent or did they want to rejoin Russia? And all the international observers have said the vote was completely fair, no coercion. They had an amazing turnout. Uh, mm -hmm over 80%, which is unheard of in any Western election. And the vote in favor of going to Russia was 97%. So, and of course, uh, the Russians have not replied in kind to the Ukraine. They've said in Crimea, all languages are legal. <laughs> the, the Tartar language, the Ukrainian language, the Russian language, and everyone's a citizen, and the government represents everybody, you're all in it. <laughs> so it's a stark contrast with the way the United States and Germany have handled Kiev, where there's no elected government, 
there's an appointed government of American stooges picked by Washington. <laughs> and there, there are these right-wing elements that seem to be armed and organized that are running around uh, intimidating uh, the so-called official government. There are videos available of, of these thugs. Uh, they attack uh, a public prosecutor. Uh, they attack the editor of a TV uh, uh, station because they didn't like his reporting. They, they're slapping him around, choking him, ordering him to sign his resignation. You can see the same thugs brandishing AK-47s in front of the faces of the so-called official government, <laughs> taking his knife out, putting it on the desk. So these are thugs. And... The question that we don't yet have an answer to is, did Washington simply overlook that these people were there, or is it working with them? It, did it actually- Well, of course, they make up whatever moral story they want. I mean, I read this <laughs> report that the American government said that the Crimean referendum to rejoin Russia was illegitimate because there were a few Russian troops, although they're legally on Crimean soil. But of course, if you cast your mind back to the elections in Iraq, when uh, a million Iraqis had been slaughtered as a result of the U.S. invasion, uh, and a million and a half, I think, had fled, and the entire country's infrastructure had been bombed into atoms, that was a grand, grand exercise in democracy. But of course, <laughs> when the Crimeans do it with a few Russian soldiers there legitimately, it's a travesty. I mean, oh, but the, the moral whirly-go-round that goes on with these kinds of communications I mean, again, it's what Orwell said, you know, I mean, you, you simply change the rules, you change the moral narrative, and it's like yesterday or even this morning never happened. And these universal principles that were violated by the morally pious, self-congratulatory mob, uh, which were violated by them in the morning and now praised by them in the <coughs> afternoon. It's, it's almost schizoid. But um, uh, anyway, I don't want to make this about <laughs> my rants about But it, uh, it, it, it is relative. quite amazing because the truth is obvious, and yet... You look at why is all of Western and Eastern Europe lined up with blatant lies? It has to be money. They're paid. <laughs> They're, when I was uh, <clears throat> a young man, uh, it turned out that <clears throat> my dissertation chairman was appointed Assistant Secretary of Defense for International Security Affairs. <clears throat> and he was given the task of winding down the Vietnam War. And he called me to his office one day. And I went to see him. He wanted me to go to Vietnam and take over the aid programs. And I turned, I said, I didn't want to do that. I turned that down. But I used the opportunity uh, to question him. I asked him, how does the United States government get all these other countries always to do what it wants? He said, money. I said, oh, you mean foreign aid? He says, no, no, we just give the leaders bagfuls of money. We own them. We buy them. Now, he didn't approve of this policy. He was very upset about it. There's nothing he could do about it. It worked like that for a long time. <laughs> yeah, didn't they ship to Iraq billions of dollars in sealed plastic crates mm -hmm. to just hand out to all the tribal leaders to buy their allegiance in the short run? I mean, it is a bribocracy. It's nothing to do with any moral crusade. Afghanistan as well. Ah, yes, yes. That's exactly. Don't you remember there was that news report that uh, of the airplane landing to collect uh, 
$3 billion in cash to fly it out of the country. And uh, the Americans were unable to do anything about it because uh, under their various regulations, it was legal. So <laughs> the, the government or whoever had just stolen it and sent it off to a bank somewhere. <laughs> oh, I'm sure, but I'm sure, Dr. Roberts, it was all properly accounted for and the double entry bookkeeping <laughs> was put in place to make sure that not a single dollar was lost. Now, I wonder if we could turn a little bit to, uh, it's a word that I kind of forgot about. I mean, I remember studying it uh, when I was doing my master's uh, in the 90s, but this neo neoconservative, I mean, these bloodmongers seem hell-bent on sending an infinite butcher's bill to the rest of mankind, and I cannot for the life of me figure out where this violence addiction, where this bloodlust comes from? Is it some sort of Christian eschatological blow up the Middle East and bring on the end times? I mean, what on earth is driving these uh, maniacs in, in this hegemony fantasy that you can control the outcome of human souls at the point of a gun? <laughs> you know, I used to think it was unique to them. And um, I explained it as the consequence of the Soviet collapse, because in the new Conservatives concluded that history had chosen America. You know, that Marx was wrong. History didn't choose communism or the proletariat. <clears throat> but history chose American capitalism. This was the neocon conclusion. You may remember that book, The End of History. Yes. And what yes. that means is we're at, we're the final choice, just like, you know, Marx had an end of history. It's the workers. <clears throat> and... And so they uh, they seize on this, and the argument is that since we are chosen by history, uh, we must take this to the rest of the world. And therefore, not only are we entitled to hedge enemy over the world, but we are absolutely uh, obligated to impose it because it's history's decision. So I, and I'm sorry to interrupt, but it, you know, my family history comes from both sides of the Second World War and the First World War, where significant portions of the entire family tree were wiped out, fighting exactly this kind of Hegelian, megalomaniacal fantasy uh, that, that history chooses particular cultures and groups and gives them the right to impose their way of thinking on the rest of the world, no matter how many bodies pile up. Didn't we fight National Socialism, which was this very ideology? Didn't we not fight Communism and Fascism, which was this very ideology? Has, is it so often that we become what we fight and that the spending of these millions of lives ends up with us fueling uh, the, the turning into the very shadows we turned the light on to get rid of? Anyway, right. I'm sorry. I will contain my rants as best I can. Let's get no, back. That, that's exactly true. You said it better than I could have. And essentially, uh, the neoconservatives have the same ideology as uh, Adolf Hitler. It's the same. Americans are uberalists. <laughs> now, but it turns out that this is actually very old in our, in our history. I recently, my, my latest column is about the Spanish-American War. I think it was 1898. And already we had Henry Cabot Lodge asserting American exceptionalism, uh, American empire. He called it the large agenda. <laughs> and it was essentially... Uh, well, you know, we're, we're too good just to be in America. We need an empire. We've got to go elsewhere. So that's how they cooked up uh, the war with the Spain, so they could indulge this bloodlust, this ideology. <clears throat> and you point that strip-searched 
that there were three women who'd been strip-searched by these sinister Spaniard semi-pirates. Yeah. I mean, okay, weapons of mass destruction, it's a scary enough story that you might, if you believe it, believe in a preemptive strike against uh, Saddam Hussein, false though it, of course, turned out to be. But really, women strip-searched? This is the foundation? I mean, tell people this story, because it blew my mind when I read that. Yeah, and it's, it's not even true. No, no, but, the, but even if it was true, you go to war because, because some appeal. women got strip-searched? Yeah. Well, you know, that was a long time ago, over 100 years, and the notion of how women had to be treated and everything is quite different. And, and so... I mean, we might as well go to war against the TSA. And <laughs> yeah, well, well there's, they have better reasons, because yeah. those... Those are true. Those feel-ups actually are. Yeah. <laughs> Whereas this other is a product of, of her imagination. He knew how to get people stirred up, and so he would fit the story to the purpose. <laughs> so if we can just uh, end up, you, you had some very powerful things to say. We touched on it in the last conversation uh, about the capture of the U.S. media. I think it's really, really important for people to understand the degree to which the media are the lapdogs of coercive power. Uh, this, as you pointed out under Clinton, this is aggregation of formerly independent media to some degree run by journalists into ad executives and uh, uh, corporate uh, lawyer types into these sort of five major companies and the degree to which they are dependent on the state for their very licensing and existence. I think people aren't, oh, you're not going to get that story from the media itself. And, yeah. and I'd really want to make sure people understand the degree to which they're getting the sort of Pravda sanitized version of, of events. Well, <clears throat> if you read The War Lovers, you'll see that there never was that much of an honest media. <laughs> but there was some. And it was because it was dispersed and buried. And many of the newspapers were owned by families. And many of these families had traditions of integrity and telling the truth. But all, all the prospects of that, that slowly disappeared with time, you know, chains came up. The, uh, the inheritance tax forced a lot of families to sell, have to sell the newspapers. They become public. They're bought up. They're put in chains. But still, <clears throat> there was a varied and, and independent to some extent until the last years of Clinton uh, when he permitted the five, five mega corporations to purchase the entire media and concentrate it in five hands. So now they're huge conglomerates. There's no independence. And the value of these massive co companies is their federal broadcast licenses. And so they cannot go against the government without the risk that their broadcast licenses won't be renewed or that the government will encourage and permit one of the other mega firms to take over the one that got out of hand. <laughs> and the other consideration is that journalists are no longer part of the executive offices. It's like you said, they're corporate advertising executives and former government officials. And their eye is on uh, advertising revenue, so they don't want to upset the corporations any more than they want to upset the government. So they become mouthpieces for 
the global corporations and for Washington. And that's essentially all the U.S. media is. And increasingly, this is true of the European media. You know, the British still have a paper or two that it takes exception to the propaganda. Uh, Germany's uh, Der Spiegel magazine has on occasion made some, recently made very uh, strong comments about American imperialism and American control over Germany. So there are some uh, independent voices in Europe, but for the most part, they follow Washington's line. You don't, you don't see a lot of people saying, oh, wait a minute, don't get us involved in this. We don't want this. <clears throat> they just kind of go along, even if it's clearly not in their interest. You know, the sanctions that, that uh, Washington uh, announced on Russia are meaningless. They don't do anything. Oh, yeah. But before Crazy. they announced that, they gave the impression that they were going to be severe and really hurt the Russian economy. Well, of course, it would have any such sanction would have completely collapsed the European economy. And yet the European leaders, Merkel, the rest of them, went along with the sanctions, even though it meant their GDP, they were all going to go into a depression. <laughs> so when, when you see this kind of blind obedience of allegedly sovereign countries to... Washington, you know, there's no such thing as an independent government anywhere in Europe. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's that old phrase that, you know, I serve at the pleasure of the president. Uh, this is true of the media. I mean, the media is, is allowed to broadcast at the pleasure of the government. And that is their foundational capital value is this broadcast license, which can be revoked. I think they apply for it annually, but basically it could be revoked uh, at any time, destroying billions of dollars worth of uh, uh, basically the fundamental asset, throwing thousands of people out of work and destroying the capacity of the corporations to deliver advertisements to the people, which of course is their major focus. The media serves at the pleasure of the U.S. Uh, government, and this is really important to be aware of when, when watching anything that they're portraying. That's right. You can't believe a word they say. <laughs> no, and of course, if, if they simply reread government uh, uh, press releases, they're never going to be subjected to uh, being sued or, 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 you know, the kind of vetting process that has to go into difficult stories that run counter to someone's particular interests. So um, anyway, I don't need to reinforce that more, but I think that is uh, really important to understand that you are seeing an exercise in uh, sort of mass hypnosis propaganda. You're not seeing an exercise in the honest pursuit of truth. That's right. And in the United States, investigative journalism is simply disappearing. Yeah. It's just not it's too expensive, too legally risky. And of course, if you alienate your government contacts, then you, you, you lose basically your, your scoop, your source of information. Basically, it's, it's it, most of what the media does these days is either repeat government propaganda or at least in the economics uh, area, try to read the tea leaves of government intentions. You know, like they used to pour over Alan Greenspan's pronouncements at the feds, trying to figure out what he was actually saying. I mean, it's like he's the oracle at Delphi or something. And you've got to try and figure out what he's trying to say. I mean, this is prognostication on obscure syllables seems to be the order of the day. And all the time he was setting up a major financial crisis. And then oh, and the Pat, yes. One last thing. One last thing. Sorry to interrupt. I wanted to mention, too. Um, was okay. So, if, if uh, Crimea or the Eastern Ukraine, uh, I guess Russia has now is in the process of, of annexing it. The fate of Western 
Ukraine and the IMF and the austerity. I wonder if you could just touch on that, because I think that's one of the reasons why Crimea is rushing off to be embraced by Russia, because the alternative is having the banksters sink their fangs into the lifeblood of the economy, uh, drain it dry for their profits. So what is going to face economically uh, a Western Ukraine after this process is complete? Well, uh, the, the Ukraine is uh, heavily in debt to Western banks. And so what always happens is the International Money Monetary Fund, the IMF, they waltz in and they impose an austerity program on the people of the country and loot it and use the money to pay off the Western banks. And that's now what <clears throat> will certainly happen uh, to the Western Ukraine. There's no doubt about it. It's already, it's already started. <clears throat> they, uh, the uh, American Stooge government uh, already announced that uh, Ukrainian pensions would be cut in half. <clears throat> now, in, in a country with what forty five hundred dollars U.S. Um, average uh, income per the, per capita, pension is nowhere near that high. The pension, uh, yeah, no yeah, that's right, that. that's right. And 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 of course, the IMF always requires uh, that that you cut social services that you throw uh, government uh, workers uh, out of their jobs in order to save money. In other words, they collapse consumer purchasing power, which is already almost non-existent in Ukraine. You collapse it further. And of course, consequently, the economy collapses with the absence of purchasing power. But the country's looted and the money goes to the Western banks. And what will also happen is the American agribusiness corporations, they will end up with the Ukrainian farmland. Hmm. If the Russian cities somehow remain in Ukraine, all those industries will end up in the hands of Americans and Germans. <laughs> they won't any longer be Ukrainian. In other words, it'll become just another puppet state, but more completely a puppet state because the ownership of the productive resources will no longer be reside in Ukraine. So that's, that's what's going to happen. Now, you see uh, some of the gullible dupes who were protesting, they now realize that. <laughs> and they realize what idiots they were, and they write to me. And so I'm so sorry I sent you that hate mail. You were right. We're doomed. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, it's uh, to, to be a truth teller of any kind on the planet is to have about 10,000 lasers <laughs> attached to you from people who then switch off the safeties and come shake your hand when they realize the truth. So, well, listen, I, I could talk all day. Really, really appreciate the time. Of course, uh, it's uh, great to, uh, uh, to chat with somebody who, you know, has studied some of the history and, and knows some of the larger forces at play here. Uh, PaulCrackRoberts.org uh, also recommend. It's a challenging read for me because I find the thesis quite exciting, to put it mildly. But your latest book, uh, The Failure of Laissez-Faire Capitalism, is uh, an engaging read. Um, and uh, it runs counter to some of my sort of free market tendencies. But I'm you know, working to keep an open mind <clears throat> as the thesis develops. But I would certainly recommend that. We'll put a link to that uh, to be able to purchase that in the um, notes for, for the show. But uh, Dr. Roberts, thank you again, as always, so much for your time. It's, it's a real pleasure. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. Take care.